0: Good morning and happy Monday Discos. Welcome to our weekly advance mini episode. The first communique of the week between you and yours truly, the place for us to set the table for everything we're going to be discussing and listening to this week. Specifically this week's release a brand new episode on you god, the 7th episode in our ongoing serialized season season 13 of Disgraceland coming to you tomorrow as well as any and all music news relevant to Disgraceland and its many subjects and of course this is where we start the conversation that we continue over voicemail, text, social media, and in our Thursday bonus episodes. All right, the Wu-Tang train keeps the rolling this week with a brand new episode on U-God, a guy who was raised by the streets of Staten Island where getting your ass beat was a rite of passage. It made you stronger, didn't make you weaker. You God, he dealt crack. He narrowly avoided a police raid on the apartment building that he worked out of. He also dealt out vengeance, once coming within seconds of gunning down a rival dealer. And when he finally put the violent life of the streets behind him and found freedom in the music that he made with Wu-Tang Clan, yep, you guessed it, his past came back to haunt him and put his two-year-old son in the crosshairs. All right, a couple of the guys of Wu-Tang have written books. Some are autobiographies like Raekwon's From Staircase to Stage. Others are more guides to the Wu-Tang world, like the Riz's book, The Wu-Tang Manual. You God's book falls into the former category. It's called Raw, My Journey into the Wu-Tang. And, it, and true to its title, it is very raw, very honest. It's fucking great. It provided a ton of material, not only for this You God episode, but for the entire season. We used something like five or six books as our primary research material for this season, and You Gods was definitely one of the best. So if at the end of the season, you guys find yourself wanting to digest more Wu-Tang stuff, check out that You God book, Raw, My Journey into the Wu-Tang. All right. The number one song in America right now as of the writing of this episode is Slime You Out by Drake featuring SZA. This song is brand new this week, straight to the top. Drake's 12th number one ties him for the fifth most in the list history. 12 number ones. Who's got more, you ask? Well, Michael Jackson's got 13. Rihanna's got 14. Mariah Carey's got 19. And the Beatles are still way ahead with 20. If I was Mariah Carey, my ass would be burning up that I was one behind the Beatles. Uh, How long uh, will the Beatles stay at the top with 20 number one hits? I don't know. Will they ever get knocked off the top slot one of these weeks? I don't know. If so, who will it be Bye. I, I don't know. Drake? I don't know. Who cares? Why am I obsessed with the charts? I don't know. I just am. All right. Let's uh, check into some emails from you guys. All right. This one comes from Matt Valerio. It says, uh, subject Peter Ivers episode, musician and friend to Steve Martin, bludgeoned to death. Message says, hi, Jake. Love what you do. Not sure if you're familiar with the late musician Peter Ivers. I am. It uh, goes on to say, but the story surrounding his death has always fascinated me. Me as well. That's me. Uh, he goes on to say his music was good, albeit a bit out there, which I love. He goes on to give a brief overview, Matt does, of Peter Ivers, an influential composer, host of the experimental television show New Wave Theater. On March 83, Ivers was found dead in his L.A. apartment, bludgeoned to death with a hammer. He was only 36. His death remains a mystery. No firm leads. Uh, Detectives believe that he was beaten to death in his bed late at night by an intruder who surprised him. Uh, The intruder made off with audio equipment worth a few hundred bucks. Ivers was a friend of celebrities like Steve Martin and worked prodigiously until his death. You know, I've been aware of this story for years and I've wanted to cover it, but the truth is I know numerous people in podcasting who I'm friends with who are on the case and they're covering it and out of respect for them, I'm just kind of stepping aside. I'm going to let them do what they do. And uh, maybe when all is said and done, maybe I'll eventually cover it. But, uh, sit tight there. You're about to get some Peter Ivers content coming your way. Not for me. When it comes out, I will be promoting it. All right. What else we got here? All right. This one comes from Haya Simkin who writes subject three suggestions for your podcast message. I love your podcast and I love country singers like Merle Haggard. I have three suggestions. If you want to talk about music that wasn't produced in the United States, I'll give them to you from my least favorite to my most favorite with short explanations. Number one, have you ever heard Melda Marcos sing or play piano? She did that too in between buying shoes and torturing dissidents. I did not know anything about that, but that's fascinating. Uh, number two, have you heard of the theremin and its inventor? I have heard of the theremin. Leon Theremin, for whom the wacky instrument was named, was actually a physicist. He discovered that your body can change the way an electromagnetic field sounds. And that was how the first electronic instrument, and to date, the only one that requires no physical touch, was born. This is interesting. This is interesting, man. Uh, sent on tour with this instrument by the Soviet Union, made it to the States only to be abducted. Sent to the gulags. All right, this is cool. I like this one. I like this one. Uh, Number three, Israeli king of Mideastern-style pop. Zohar Argov had a beautiful tenor voice, and he sang Mideastern-style music at a time when many descendants of Middle Eastern Jews would not listen to it, but it was discriminated against by the establishment. All right, all right, all right. Goes on to say, I personally uh, found it fascinating. Like Merle Haggard, the songs were about, by, and for working-class citizens. I can get with that breezing through this email. Uh, this is a good one. This is a good one. And this, uh, who who sent this in here? Haya Simkin, even sent in references and links. Very cool, Haya. I'm going to look into this and I'll take all of your suggestions seriously and hope that we, I like the de DeMarcos one a lot. Maybe we'll get into that. All right, let's see what else. Let's do one more email here and then just keep rolling. All right, this one comes from Veronica Crossley, subject Village People. Hey, huge fan of both pods. Have you ever thought of doing an episode on the Village People? Something popped up on my feed about how they let the U.S. Navy rights to In the Navy for recruiting in exchange to film the music video on an aircraft carrier. I was curious if it was actually true. Looking forward to hopefully an episode on them. Uh, I have no idea, Veronica, but now I'm curious and I'm going to look into that for you. All right, let's move on here. Guys, uh, real quick, you want to email me? That's disgracelandpod at gmail.com. Hit me up, all right? Time to shift gears a little bit and get into some Disgraceland subject history, okay? All right, 56 years ago today, on October 2nd, 1967, the chief of the State Narcotics Bureau and the head of the San Francisco Police Department's narcotics squad led police inside 710 Ashbury Street while reporters and TV crews waited on the sidewalk and they arrested the Grateful Dead. Specifically, Ron Pickpen McKernan and Bob Weir, along with their managers, Rock Scully and Danny Rifkin. Their sound engineer, Bob Matthews, got busted as well and five other friends who were just hanging out. Quote, that's what you get for dealing the killer weed, unquote. That's what one of the arresting agents said to the guys. No shit, direct quote. Uh, we've covered the dead Pretty extensively, as you know, crazy stories like this are out there, and they are definitely out there in the two Disgraceland episodes that we did on the group in season three, and then again in season eight. But also over in the 27 Club, another show that I host, we've got an entire season dedicated to Ron Pigpen McKernan. And then also we have another series called Dead and Gone. Uh, it's a collaboration we do with Payne Lindsay and Tenderfoot TV about missing and murdered Grateful Dead fans. So for all you new listeners, and who are dead fans, check out all that Grateful Dead content we've got in the hopper. All right, on October 2nd, uh, but this time in 2017. So that's six years ago now. Six years ago, Tom Petty died at the age of 66. Way too young, way too soon. I saw Petty in the last tour he did at the Boston Garden. It was the only time I saw Tom Petty. Uh, He he didn't do a lot off Wildflowers. And I wasn't bummed even though Wildflowers is one of my favorite records of all time because I knew Petty was planning a tour where he was just going to get into Wildflower songs. And then, of course, he died and it didn't happen. We covered Tom, uh, Tom Petty in season nine of And You can listen to that episode. That's in your feed as well. Um, on October 4th, back in 1957, Little Richard, the originator, the architect, the king and queen of rock and roll. Well, he quit rock and roll back on October 4th in 1957. Quit at cold turkey at the height of his success on tour in Australia. Why? Because he had an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. You can relate to that, can't you? I can. Uh, Both of them were vying for his attention when the reality was that he uh, he was a little bit of both and he was attentive to a little bit of both is what I'm saying. And on this night, however, the angel spoke a little louder. Little Richard did something about it, did something that no one was expecting and we covered this back in season five and here's a clip. The voice of Angel wouldn't be deterred. Richard had all but abandoned God traded in a truly pious life for rough and tumble music and rough, tumbling sex. But Richard's angel wasn't deterred she'd find another way to get through. And so it was, while headlining a tour of Australia with Eddie Cochran and Jean Vincent, that Little Richard stood at his piano at an outdoor show in Sydney and arched his neck towards the night sky. He saw a red streak burn through the air far above where he stood, knees bent and fingers hammering the ivory. Angel was out of his head now, and was sending a harrowing message of death and destruction straight towards him. It would set fire to Sydney and to him, and it would all be his fault. He struck the piano so hard with his hands, he wondered if his rings would shatter. He hit the piano harder to distract himself from the terror he felt, the imminent danger he knew he was in. He'd hurt himself just to make it all go away, but it wasn't going anywhere. He had to go somewhere. And that was it. He was done. He walked off that stage, and he wouldn't go back. He asked Angel to tell God that this was it. This was the last show and begged her to stop sending him flaming balls of chaos and disorder. He'd end it tonight. To prove himself, he ran to the Sydney Harbor and threw his $8,000 ring in the water, left the Torah with 10 days of shows remaining, half a million in canceled bookings, lawsuits, anger, outrage. He went back home, locked himself in a room with a Bible, and didn't talk to anyone the flaming red ball of fire that he saw burn up the night sky in Australia wasn't a sign from God. It was Sputnik, the Soviet satellite that had just been launched into space. But even if you told Little Richard the truth in the moment, he wouldn't have believed you because he had been sent a message. He was reminded of the awesomeness of God and the vengefulness of God should Richard give in to the earthly evil path made possible through rock and roll. All right, to hear more about Little Richard's struggle with the angels and his struggle with the devils and just what happened after he tossed that ring in the Sydney Harbor, go check out our episode from season five on Little Richard in Disgraceland. I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be back in a flash. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland. All access by visiting DisgracelandPod.com slash membership. All right, talking about musicians in the news, okay? This isn't about a musician, but it's about a music journalist, one of the most famous and successful music journalists of all time, Guy by the name of Jan Wenner. And uh, this is uh, pretty fucking nuts. If you haven't heard about this already, here's the gist. I have notes on this. I'm not really going by a script here. So forgive me as I rant. Jan Wenner, co founder of Rolling Stone Magazine, uh, once a hugely influential music magazine, now more of a corporate clickbait headline generator, but I digress. Jan Wenner, the magazine's founder, no longer with Rolling Stone, but he founded Rolling Stone. He's, he's in his 70s. He's got a new book coming out called The Masters, which features conversations between himself and some hand-picked artists from over the years, specifically Bono, Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger, John Lennon, Jerry Garcia, Pete Townsend, and Bob Dylan. Now, for the most part, these are musicians who at one point in their careers uh, specifically coveted a sort of quid pro quo relationship with Jan Wenner for obvious reasons. The guy, at least in the 1980s and 90s anyways, wielded immense journalistic and cultural power. I mean, there was a time when record reviews, actually positive ones, actually resulted in more record sales. Not so much anymore, but there really was back in the 80s and the 90s. And if you got a good review in Rolling Stone or if you were featured on the cover of Rolling Stone then you would make more money, essentially, and you would, of course, be more relevant. Um, so, you know, you may not have heard of Jan Wenner, but you've definitely heard of Mick Jagger and you may be like, well, why does Mick Jagger give a shit about Jan Wenner? Well, I just told you why. So back to the now, Jan Wenner recently gave an interview to the New York Times to promote his upcoming book. And when he was asked why a book called The Masters features only white men, which is a bit of a loaded and kind of dumb question, but that he followed it up with an even dumber answer, uh, by responding that. He didn't think that female artists or artists of color were, quote, articulate enough, unquote. Again, when Jan Wenner was asked why his book called The Masters featured only white men, he responded by saying that he did not think that women or artists of color were, quote, articulate enough, unquote. The stupidity of this quote, it's almost too stupid for me to even comment on. I don't want to be one of these guys who takes an easy layup and adds my voice to the culture war chorus that's screaming out about this right now, Jan Wenner said something dumb, incredibly dumb, and truly insensitive. And he, of all people, should have fucking known better, but he didn't. And this is a no, by the way, this is in no way a defense of Jan Wenner. In fact, it's it's more, it's an additional critique. The reason he said what he said, I think anyways, is less about any sort of lo-fi racism lurking beneath the surface of Jan Wenner's personality, though that's certainly part of it. But to me, what he said has more to do with hubris, or at least it's equally about hubris, more specifically, baby boomer hubris and baby boomer narcissism. I'm not one to toe the okay boomer meme. I think it's dumb. I think that the, the boomer generation, as silly as they are, they've contributed culturally in ways that no other generation, let's be honest, they've contributed culturally in ways that no other generation ever has or ever will. However, there is a hubris an egoism, a narcissism, an attitude, and I was there for Vietnam and the Summer of Love and JFK and the Beatles, and I'm so fucking in love with the sound of my own voice that I'll say whatever the fuck I like and expect the world to treat me like the genius that I am. That attitude, that's Jan Wenner's trip. When you read him or hear him, that fucking boomer narcissistic attitude that I find so repellent. That, to me, is at the core of the stupid, insensitive, racist comment that he gave to the New York Times, all right? Curtis Mayfield can't, quote, articulate at that level, unquote. Fuck you. Go listen to Curtis's uh, Move On Up from the Curtis album, you fucking boob. Uh, I read an article a couple years ago when Jan Wenner's first book came out, which I still haven't read, but I want to read, and this was by someone apparently much smarter than me, who compared Jan Wenner, the baby boomer, to Donald Trump, the baby boomer. And, you know, when you consider the boomer narcissism here, these two aren't that far off from one another, despite where they both sit now on opposite ends of the culture war. Jan Wenner, because of all this, he lost, this is part of the news section here, less about my rant. He lost his beloved seat on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame board of directors, which is sort of the closest thing the music world has to a boomer Illuminati. And I'm sure that he's heartbroken about it. Maybe he's having a hard time articulating that heartbreak. If only there were, say, some talented, articulate black and or female songwriters who could help him out. Maybe if he wasn't such an egotistical boob, he could call Smokey Robinson or or Patti Smith and and ask them to help him with that articulation, to help him articulate that heartbreak. Uh, I doubt they'd call him back, though, as they shouldn't. Uh, Side note, lost in this New York Times interview where Jan Wenner made his idiotic statement, and this most certainly would have been news had he not made this stupid statement, it was revealed that Jan Wenner used to allow the artists that he interviewed to edit the copy of their interviews before they were published, which is kind of anti-journalism 101. But whatever, Jan, you're friends with Mick fucking Jagger, so who cares? And people still think we have a free press, which we have anything but and haven't had and haven't had a free press in modern history. This is just the latest bit of proof. All right, enough ranting. I want to bring some levity to this conversation here. I texted Zeth Lundy, who writes for us and helps me put together these episodes. And I wrote, uh, I want to share with you the text thread. I wrote, Uh, I just wrote to him, hey man, I was pretty deep into yawn in this episode. And he wrote, quote, deep into yawn, sounds like a tasteful European porn from the early 70s. And I wrote, uh, yeah, back of the VHS tape says, Deep into Jan explores the sensual transgressions of a powerful baby boomer in love with the sound of his own aggressive orgasms. That is uh, Jan Wenner to me. So if you have any sort of, if you have a way to, what I'm getting at here I think is is another call to action for you guys. If you can creatively work Jan Wenner's name into the title of a fictional porn movie, uh, please do so. Text me at 617-906-6638 or leave me a voicemail 617-906-6638 with your Jan Wenner fictional porn movie titles. And uh, I'll replay them back either in the after party or here in the pre-party next week. Let's move on to a little bit of more news here from the land of music and true crime. French rapper M.H.D., was just sentenced to 12 years in prison. The Afro-trap rapper was found guilty of a 2018 gang-related murder. He was one of nine men charged with the killing of a 23-year-old who was beaten and stabbed on the streets of Paris. MHD was arrested and charged with second-degree murder back in January of 2019, just months after his second album was released. Who wants a French rap murder episode that takes place on the streets of Paris? I'm feeling like I might. That sounds interesting. I don't know. All right, look, in other news... I'm trying to get away from all the Lizzo drama, but every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. A new lawsuit, a new one has been filed, and I got to just lay it out here for you. This one, quickly, this one by a former wardrobe designer who briefly worked on Lizzo's 2023 tour before being dismissed. According to the New York Times, the lawsuit alleges that the tour's wardrobe designer created a hostile work environment that management and Lizzo failed to address. And the plaintiff worked on the tour for less than a month. She named Lizzo as a defendant in the lawsuit, but does not accuse Lizzo directly of harassment. Here's a quote from the plaintiff's lawyer. Lizzo is the boss, so the buck stops with her, unquote. And as critical as I've been of Lizzo regarding the allegations against her so far, uh, this one, I just want to point out reeks of opportunism. Is that a word? Opportunism? I think it is. Uh, and finally, this isn't true crime related, but I got to mention it. Bob Dylan showed up at Farm Aid the other week. Total surprise. Played a three song set with the Heartbreakers. Yes, Tom Petty's band, not Johnny Thunders' band. But damn, can you imagine Bob Dylan and Johnny Thunders as Heartbreakers? That'd be interesting. So what band other than the Heartbreakers would you want to see uh, Bob Dylan front? Or perhaps what band <laughs> other than the Heartbreakers would you want to see Tom Petty front? I don't know. I'm riffing. 617-906-6638 or at Pod on the socials. Let me know what's on your mind. I'll get back to you here in the bonus episodes. All right, let's wrap this advanced mini episode up now that we've set the week for us here in Disgraceland. Number one, get ready for brand new episodes hitting your feeds this week in Disgraceland, you God of Wu Tang Clan tomorrow. And then we're back with a new after party on Thursday. Number two, I got questions. I'm looking for answers, man. 617 906 6638. I wanna know what's on your mind. I wanna know what band you want. Bob Dylan to front that is not the Heartbreakers. I want to know what band you wanted to see Tom Petty front that wasn't the Heartbreakers. I want to know what the title of your Jan Wenner fictional porn movie is, okay? Work Jan Wenner into a porn title for bonus disco points. Hit me up, 617 906 6638, voicemail and text. All right, you got on Tuesday, new after party on Thursday. We're back right here on Monday with another one of these advanced mini episodes to kick your week off and to land this plane. I am going to read to you the Billboard charts from the week of September 30th 1967 the week that the grateful dead got a visit from the narcotics squad in the haight ashbury 1 the letter the box tops last week 1 peak position 1 weeks on chart 8 number 2 ode to billy joe last week 2 peak position 1 weeks on chart 9 3 never my love the association last week 5. Peak position. 3. Weeks on chart. 6. 4. Come back when you grow up. Five. Bobby V and the Strangers. Last week. 3. Peak position. 3. Weeks on chart. 11. on 5. Reflections. Diana Ross and Supremes. Last week. 4. Peak position. Two. Six weeks on, weeks chart, on chart. chart. Eight. Six. six. Apples, Apple, Apple, peaches, 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 pumpkin pie. Peaches. J. Techniques. Last week. Six. Peak position. Six. six. Weeks on chart. Twelve. Seven. Your love keeps... Quit talking and start mixing. Cut cool. it.